Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at AntiochChurch.org. Thanks for listening. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Colossians 1, 1 through 8. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. So if you've got a Bible, you can open it up to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. And we're going to dive into a new series this morning through the epistle to the Colossians. Uh, while you're doing that, hopefully in your bulletin this morning, you got a uh, church survey. And uh, this week and next week, we would love if you would uh, take, it should just take you a couple minutes uh, during the boring parts of my sermon to uh, fill out some of your important information. And as we get ready to do our annual report, uh, it's helpful for us to just kind of get a feel for who the congregation is. And there's also some space for you to give some feedback as well. And we really would value that. So um, please take a moment to do that this morning. And you can drop those in the black boxes on your way out afterwards. So Colossians chapter 1. Um, this is a letter, an epistle written by the Apostle Paul. And he has heard that the gospel of Jesus has reached this little town called Colossae. And as he sits in prison, most likely in the city of Ephesus, somewhat nearby, he writes them a letter. If you're under 30, a letter is kind of like a text, but it's on paper and it comes in a mailbox. Uh, you could ask your parents about it. But uh, let me show you just real quick. This is modern day Turkey and uh, kind of gives you a feel for uh, where this all went down. Italy over on the left, Greece in the center, Iraq, uh, Jerusalem down at the bottom, and uh, kind of on the west side of Turkey, you have this little town called Colossae. And um, <clears throat> this city, Colossae, and the church that was there, um, in many ways, is considered probably the least significant city that Paul addressed a letter to. Um, Colossae, at one point, had been a pretty sizable and significant place. Uh, it was located upon some strategic trade routes, and it became an economic and cultural hub uh, for a while. But by the time Paul's writing this letter, around the year 52 or 53 AD, 
Um, some things had changed. Some Roman roads had been rerouted, and Colossae was no longer what it used to be. And it was now kind of a smaller, forgotten town, um, really a place that wasn't all that desirable, not all that memorable. We talk about flyover states um, or things like that. Colossae in the Greek is literally Prineville. Um, so you can think about it that way. That's not funny. Um, an early Christian missionary by the name of Epaphras, who we first are introduced to here in verse 7, uh, he travels to Colossae, and he announces the good news of the kingdom of God that has come in Jesus. And some of the Colossian people hear this gospel, and they believe it, and they receive it, and a church is planted. And now, as far as we know, Paul has never been to Colossae himself and has never met this little community of Christians, but he is a friend of Epaphras's, and they are having conversations as Paul's sitting in prison, and Epaphras is telling him all the good things that God is doing among the church in Colossae. And so Paul sits down in prison, and he writes them this letter. Um, what you'll notice is that so much of this first chunk is really uh, standard for Paul. The way he introduces himself and his fellow author, Timothy, the way he pronounces God's grace and peace upon his recipients. And then what he does next is what he does in really all but two of his epistles, in that he begins his letter by telling his recipients how thankful he is for them, how often he is committed to praying for them. And oftentimes what he does then is kind of share some of the contents of his prayer. Okay, so even though Paul is locked up in prison, he continues to pursue this calling or this vocation that the Lord has given him as a minister of the gospel, as a shepherd of God's flock. And the work that he does as a pastor from prison is sometimes in the form of letter writing, but most often we get the idea that for Paul, prayer is a central part of his work. What else are you going to do as you sit in a jail cell? And so he contends with the Lord. He prays for these people, and he writes to them this kind of unlikely little flyover forgotten church. Paul, the famous Apostle Paul, knows who they are, he's heard good things about them, and he opens by telling them that he always thanks God for them and that he always prays for them. So in 1.3, Paul is thankful for the community of Christ followers because of what he has heard about them. Well, what is it that he's heard about them that makes him so excited? Well, in verse 4, he says, it's because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and the love you have for all God's people. It's a really simple but beautiful summary of Paul's vision for the followers of Jesus in this community beginning to bear some fruit. What are some of the characteristics or the celebration points that he looks for? How does he determine whether a church is going well or not going well? Well, he goes, I hear about your faith in Jesus and your love for people, and I'm so thankful. That is exactly what we're looking for. That's what we're praying for. That's what we're working for. That's what we're laboring for, to see disciples formed who are faithful and allegiant to Christ 
and that faithfulness and allegiance expressed through love of people. Sounds pretty Jesus-y, right? Sounds like a pretty similar vision to what Christ had for the life of his disciples, that we would be known as those who love God and love people. And I can relate to Paul deeply, this experience of joy as a pastor, when you're able to observe faith in Christ, love for people that grows amongst the congregation that you're called to, that you care for, that you pray for, that you labor over. And so I I don't always have these moments, but as I read and studied this passage this week, I found myself being able to identify so closely with Paul in the sense of gratitude and joy that he has for this congregation. And he hasn't even met this congregation, but I, I need to, I want to follow his example and just say how thankful I am for you. That I always thank God for you, Antioch. I am so grateful for the chance to be your pastor. I'm so grateful for the community that God has formed in here and for all the beautiful and exciting ways that faith in Jesus and love for neighbor is being expressed here. I really am grateful. Most of you know this 2019, I'm happy to get it behind us. It was a rough year for me, for our family, uh, seasons of loss and struggle for me, depression, discouragement. Um, It was a hard year and I'm happy to say goodbye to it. You guys were so gracious, were so kind, have been so thoughtful and prayerful and encouraging uh, through the whole thing. I think I probably would have been fired from most churches for what I went through, and you guys have uh, loved me and my family so well. And so with Paul, I want to say I always thank God when I pray for you. I am so grateful for this congregation. And just like Epaphras, I often find myself bragging about this congregation. That's really what we see happening here. Epaphras is going back to Paul, and he's like, you should, you should hear about what God's doing among these people, how authentic their faith is, how beautiful their love for God and others is. And uh, I do that on a regular basis as well. So thank you. Thank God for you. Um, For people like Paul, for people like myself, for our other um, pastors and those of you who are committed to the gospel as your life work and as your life calling, we know firsthand that there's nothing more rewarding than seeing the gospel of Jesus bear fruit in the lives of those who you're serving. And so Paul's writing to express that gratitude and to encourage them. At the same time, Paul is writing with some specific warnings or a specific set of challenges that uh, he knows the church in Colossae is facing in mind, and he wants to help them to stand firm in the faith and to continue to be loyal and faithful to Jesus and to continue to grow in the gospel. And so uh, what we can gather from the context is that the Christians in Colossae are experiencing pressure that there are some challenges culturally that would tempt them to move away from the gospel that they received through Epaphras' teaching and instead to be swayed according to what Paul calls essentially the ways of the world as opposed to the ways of Jesus. 
And so uh, there are times, even in the story of the early church, where some early churches are being tempted or drawn away from the gospel to what we might call the right, towards fundamentalism or towards moralism. And it's those cases like in the book of uh, Galatians, Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, we can discern that that is a church that was being um, tempted towards legalism and towards empty religion, that you need to keep all these rules and you need to eat kosher and there's certain things you can wear and certain things you can't wear. And if you haven't been circumcised, you gotta get circumcised and so on and so forth. And these are rules and regulations that Jesus never gave to his followers. And so Paul is writing to this church in Galatia and reminding them of this gospel of grace that we aren't justified or made right with God through our moral behavior or our religious conformity. We are made right with God by the grace of Jesus received through faith. So some churches are tempted to the right, so to speak. Other churches were being tempted to the left. If you think about a letter like 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to a church community that's immersed in a very progressive and liberal society, a pluralistic culture where Christianity is one of uh, thousands of different worldviews or faith systems. And so what Paul observes in the church in Corinth is that they are veering away from the gospel towards license, towards liberalism, uh, towards indulgence. There, he's got people who are getting drunk on the communion wine. He's got a dude who's sleeping with his mom. It's keeping up with the Corinthians, basically. And Paul is writing to them and saying, your problem isn't so much that you're being tempted by religion and legalism. Your problem is that you're being tempted by relativism and by irreligion. <clears throat> One of the early church fathers, second century African church father by the name of Tertullian, observed this dynamic going way, way back. He said that just as Christ was crucified between two thieves, so this doctrine of justification is ever crucified between two opposite errors. Okay, this is a, a complex and sophisticated understanding of the gospel as it relates to the various cultural contexts that it arrives in. There's a really simplistic understanding that, the Christ, that Christianity is about making bad people good. And we know that that's really not the story. Because it has just as much to say about people who think they are good and need to be loved with grace and brought into the family of God. And so uh, Tim Keller is somebody who I've learned much about this kind of thing from, and he writes about this dynamic, these two thieves on either side of the gospel. He calls them moralism and relativism. This is how he says it. On one hand, moralism stresses truth without grace, for it says that we must obey the truth in order to be saved. And on the other hand, relativism stresses grace without truth, for it says that we are all accepted by God, whatever God is, and we have to decide what truth is, what is truth for us. But truth without grace is not really truth. And grace without truth is not really grace. Jesus was full of grace and truth. I love this vision. 
that you have churches like Galatia being tempted to abandon the gospel and go to the far right, churches like Corinth tempted to abandon the gospel, go to the far left, and what we'll see is in the church in Colossae, they're experiencing both of those temptations at the same time. That the warnings that Paul will give throughout the book of Colossians have to do with both Uh, resisting the pull towards moralism, towards religious performance, and towards uh, legalism, and at the same time resisting the pull towards relativism and towards license. He calls them to live this radical third way, which is not a mushy middle, not half liberal, half fundamental, but a radical third way marked by the kingship of Jesus. A way of being and living in the world that won't fit nicely into any of society's categories. A way that can't be reduced to conservatism, fundamentalism, religion, or liberalism, progressivism, relativism. A radical new way of being human and organizing our lives and relationships. A radical new way of understanding what life is all about in the first place and therefore how we steward our bodies and our money and our wealth and our stuff and our power. This is one of the reasons why I think the book of Colossians is so relevant and timely for a group of people like us inhabiting the cultural moment we find ourselves in. That this is nothing new. It's been since Tertullian, right? But it's so clear in a culture that's so polarized that there will be a constant temptation to reduce the gospel, to abandon our vision of the kingdom that Jesus has given us. And instead to syncretize with culture to the right or to the left. And the meat and the beauty and the depth of Paul's letter to the Colossians is he goes, it's not about conservatism or or liberalism. It's not about fundamentalism or relativism. It's about Christ. Christ is all. He's a whole other thing. Following Jesus is a whole other way of being human. And yeah, it's tricky. Yeah, it takes some discernment. It takes some courage. It takes some creativity to figure out what does it look like to be faithful in pledging our allegiance to Christ and his kingdom above all else. And it may even be costly. That's why I'm excited to dive in to this letter together. Um, speaking of costly, <clears throat> by way of introduction, there's a significance to the fact that Paul writes this letter from prison. His words would be just as true had he written them from anywhere else. But when you understand the context, the backstory, the setting, and the narrative out of which Paul's words come, 
inspired by the Holy Spirit, but wrapped in this human being sitting in a jail cell for his proclamation of the gospel. It changes things. His words take on a whole new layer of power and a new prophetic insight when you have somebody who's writing from prison. Last century gave us several significant examples of people that have followed in the way of Jesus, followed in the way of Paul, and that their allegiance to Christ and their faithfulness to the kingdom has led them to a place where they too were imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. And I want to share two of those letters by way of illustration to help us understand the significance of prison letters. One of these letters was written in July 8, on July 18th, 1944, in Berlin, Germany. And the other letter was written on April 16th, 1963, in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, let me set up the first letter by sharing from a book called The Battle for Bonhoeffer by Stephen Haynes. It came out uh, about two or three years ago. And he describes the setting um, that Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life and ministry took place in. <clears throat> Despite all the evidence to the contrary, many Christians in Germany let themselves be persuaded that Hitler was a deeply pious man, placed in power by God through a graceful act of intervention in German history. Hitler encouraged these ideas not by claiming any allegiance to Christ, but by employing vague religious language, promising a return to the good old days, and posing for photographs as he left church, prayed, and entertained ecclesiastical leaders. He goes on to say, here are a few examples of how Protestant Christian leaders in Germany spoke about God's role in Hitler's ascension to power. Hitler's the best man imaginable, a man shaped in a mold made of unity, piety, energy, and strength of character. Another quote, Hitler, the most German man, is also the most faithful, a believing Christian. We know that he begins and ends the course of his day with prayer. And finally, this quote, God has granted us an hour of grace through Adolf Hitler. Now, this is crazy. It's crazy on this side of history, on this side of the pond, to look back and go, how could these <clears throat> Christian leaders, Protestant pastors and theologians and others, have been so deceived? But not all of them were. Bonhoeffer was a German theologian and pastor who was one of the first to recognize the evil of Hitler's regime. And he began to speak out against the evils of Nazi Germany early on, while most Christian leaders in the country were jumping on board and even celebrating. Bonhoeffer had already become well-known for his writings by this time and actually had an opportunity to come to the States to study. And he stayed here for a few years as the war began to develop he decided to go back instead of staying here in the comfort and safety of the U.S. He goes back to Germany to suffer alongside those uh, 
who were resisting Hitler's regime. Of course, that doesn't go over very well. Bonhoeffer ends up arrested, and he then is imprisoned and spends the last several years of his life, very much like Paul in this case, writing letters from prison, continuing to do his pastoral and theological work through prayer and letter writing. And he writes this letter on July 18th in 1944, imprisoned in a camp in Berlin, saying this, that Christians arrange themselves with God in his suffering. That is what distinguishes them from the heathen. As Jesus asked in Gethsemane, could you not watch with me one hour? That is the exact opposite of what the religious man expects from God. Man is challenged to participate in the sufferings of God at the hands of a godless world. What a remarkable statement of what it means to live as those who are faithful in pledging our allegiance to Christ and his kingdom. He says, this is not what you would expect. This is not what those in religious and cultural power would promise. But he basically says that if we are going to follow Jesus, if we are going to truly be Christian, be Christ-like, then what that looks like is joining God in his suffering at the hands of an evil world. Not the pursuit of cultural and political power from the top, but joining those who are oppressed at the bottom. Now that's a profound and provocative idea coming from anybody. But the fact that it was written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer from his jail cell makes it mean, takes on a whole nother layer of meaning and power. For him, he stands faithful to Christ, resistant to Hitler and the Nazi regime, saying, I will not let the faith, my faith in Jesus be hijacked by any other king or ruler or leader or vision. And ultimately, <clears throat> he never leaves prison. He's moved to several concentration camps before he's executed. One other letter from April 16th, 1963, Birmingham, Alabama. A group of white pastors have written a letter to Martin Luther King Jr. And they've essentially said, hey, we are supportive of you and your movement. We want to see civil rights for people of color in the United States. We want to see the end of systemic racism. We want to see the end of segregation. We want to see the end of violence against uh, African Americans. We're with you, Dr. King. But could you tone it down a little bit? 
Could you not be so outspoken? Could you not be so intense? Could you not be so provocative and so extreme? Just be a little bit more patient. Be a little bit more palatable. That was the message that Dr. King received. And his famous letter, letter from Birmingham jail, he responds to that group of pastors incredibly graciously, <laughs> trying to, literally trying to help them understand why he can't tone it down, why he can't chill out. And this is what he said when they accuse him of being an extremist in his letter from Birmingham. Though I was initially disappointed at being categorized as an extremist, as I continued to think about the matter, I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. So the question, Dr. King goes on, is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists we will be. Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? In that dramatic scene on Calvary's hill, three men were crucified. And we must never forget that all three were crucified for the same crime, the crime of extremism. Two were extremists for immorality and thus fell below their environment. The other, Jesus Christ, was an extremist for love, truth, and goodness, and thereby rose above his environment. Perhaps the South, the nation, and the world are in dire need of creative extremists. <clears throat> Again, persuasive, powerful words coming from anybody. But when you understand that Dr. King was writing from a jail cell, that he was writing as one who, in similar spirit to Bonhoeffer's words, had joined God in his suffering amongst the least of these. All of a sudden, these words take on a whole new level of meaning and power. Bonhoeffer, Dr. King, Paul, none of them perfect, none of them without flaws or without warts, and all of them the first to acknowledge that. But we begin to catch this vision of what allegiance to Christ may actually look like. When those who are suffering for the sake of the gospel, those whose lives are on paper going very poorly, those who ultimately are arrested, imprisoned, and executed for their faith in Jesus, when those voices continue to proclaim that Christ is all, 
that Jesus is king? That he is the hope for humanity? That he is the salvation for our soul? That he is the life that we long for? It's easy to hear that message from somebody for whom things are working out pretty well. But to hear it from those who are suffering and imprisoned for the gospel means something else. And I want us to keep that in mind as we journey through this letter over the next couple months. That Paul is writing from a place of deep conviction that Jesus is everything. And he should know because he's lost everything else. One final thought. As I mentioned, Colossae was an insignificant town that people wouldn't have wanted to spend much time in or uh, travel to regularly. But no doubt, um, they had heard, these early Christians had heard of Paul. They had heard of his dramatic experience of meeting Jesus and going from being a terrorist of Christians to um, one of the most significant Christians that's ever lived. They'd heard this story, and they likely knew from Epaphras of what had happened to him, and now that he's in jail, and in many ways, Paul was uh, the earliest version of a hero in the faith that Christianity would have. Do you have any heroes in the faith? Maybe people that you haven't even personally met, but believers who have gone before you, whose lives, whose ministry, whose work, whose writing has marked you or, or shaped your life and faith. I've, I've had many. Um, there's probably a top five for me, and it's guys who's old white guys um, whose work has significantly shaped my theology, my understanding of discipleship, my understanding of the pastoral vocation, my vision of the church. Um, Of my kind of top five, three of them have died in the last few years. Uh, Brennan Manning, Dallas Willard, Eugene Peterson all passed away in the last few years. I never met any of them except for Eugene Peterson. Um, About seven or eight years ago, I had lunch with Eugene Peterson in West Texas. And it was the most awkward conversation I've ever had in my life. And it's strangely encouraging when you realize uh, that it somehow works out to be a super introverted pastor. Um, That's all I needed. Like an hour with him was probably good. But um, never met Willard, never met Manning. Um, Those those three guys, along with Tim Keller and N.T. Wright, who are still kicking, um, have significantly shaped... Um, my life and my theology and my thinking and all that kind of stuff. How amazing would it be for me to get a letter from one of those guys saying, Pete, we've heard about your faith in Jesus and your love for people. We want you to know that we're praying for you. Love, Tim Keller. I don't know who that would be for you, but for me, that would be uh, a pretty significant and amazing experience. To know that one of my heroes in the faith not only knew who I was, but was excited about me and what I'm doing, 
and was thanking God for me and praying for me on a regular basis. Peterson or Willard or N.T. Wright or whoever. And that would be crazy and that would be encouraging. And I don't know who your heroes in the faith would be, but the good news is that we have a situation that's even better than that. That we have someone even more heroic who's in that same place for us. Three three quick scriptures. Hebrews chapter 7. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. 1 John 2, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with, our, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Romans 8, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Isn't that amazing? As much as I'd love to hear N.T. Wright or Tim Keller had been praying for me, in reality, Jesus himself, at the right hand of the Father, knows my name, and he's proud of me. And he's praying for me, interceding for me in ways that I don't even know I need to be prayed for. And he's praying for you as well. And he knows you as well. And he's proud of you as well. What greater comfort and security is there than knowing that Christ himself is our intercessor, our mediator. Not just in our initial conversion and salvation, but in the completion and the fulfillment of our faith. That he is with us, that he is for us, that he's proud of us, that he knows us, and that he's got us. And so I'm excited to begin this journey together through the letter to the Colossians to see how this ancient, somewhat obscure text might give room for the Spirit of God to breathe the life of Jesus into this church. Will you stand? We'll pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we are thankful that you have brought us into yourself and that you have brought yourself into us, that we are one with you, and that as you sit in complete love and security at the side of the Father, that we are in you and that you are in us. There is a man in heaven in perfect communion with God. And we are in that man. 
we celebrate this gospel truth this morning. And we pray that your spirit, the same Holy Spirit that was with the Colossian people would be with us today, would give us courage, wisdom, discernment, and love that we also would be known as a community marked by our faithful allegiance to Jesus and our co-suffering love for people. And we know that'll cause us to not fit nicely into any of the categories of this world. And it may even cost us significantly. But we move forward boldly in faith from the testimony of these witnesses and ultimately the story of the gospel that you are the true king who has come into this world and is making all things new, including us. In Jesus' name we pray.